Today, before I introduce our Summer Lights preacher for this morning, I would like to invite you to turn to our passage, which I will be reading in a few moments, 2 Samuel 23, verses 20 through 23, and that can be found on page 513 in the Pew Bible, in the Pew Rack in front of you. That's page 513, 2 Samuel 23, verses 20 to 23. But in this little segment called News of the Family, let me share with you some exciting news this past week. We received an email from Greg Ogden, who is on the West Coast visiting his daughter Amy and son-in-law, and he writes, Lily and I are rejoicing at the healthy birth of our second grandchild on Tuesday, July 28th at 8.48 of Dylan James Hirsch. He weighed in at 7 pounds, 11 ounces, and was 19 and 3 quarters inches in length. Everyone is doing well. Thanks for sharing our joy. We'll want to make sure to um, congratulate him and Lily when they return. Hear now the word of the Lord. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benai went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benai, a son of Jehoiada, He too was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. The word of the Lord. It's my pleasure this morning to introduce to you the Reverend Dr. Peter Samayan, the, second, the, pa- the senior pastor of Faith Reformed Church in Traverse City, Michigan. Faith Reformed Church in Traverse City utilizes a multi-site model with multiple Sunday worship services in its various sites. Faith Reformed is a rapidly growing congregation known for serving the community. And Dr. Samayan served as chaplain at Hope College at Christ Church of Oakbrook from 1980 to 1990, as first as pastor of young adults, and later as executive pastor, and as senior pastor of Christ Community Church in Palos Heights, Illinois. I want to invite those friends from Palos worshiping here with us this morning. Thank you for coming. Peter and his wife, Becky, who teaches children with special needs, have been married for 34 years and have three adult children. Ben, Jesse, and Libby. I have five and I can't keep them straight myself. We may think that Peter came here uh, to preach this morning, but he really came here to marry his son, Jesse, to Marta on Friday. We want to congratulate him on that huge milestone. Peter coaches basketball at Traverse City St. Francis. He enjoys reading as an avid golfer 
and since moving to Traverse City has developed a newfound affection for boating. When serving as pastor on staff here, Peter touched the lives of many of us. He taught us, married many of us, baptized many of our children, helped us to bury our friends and family. He challenged and encouraged us and helped us to see Jesus in the scriptures, to help us to put our faith in him, to seek the desire of our heart in Jesus. It's my pleasure to ask you to join me in welcoming Peter back to our pulpit. It's all yours, brother. Thank you very much, uh, David, for those kind words that I wrote for you. That's nice. Uh, You said it exactly the way I wanted you to. That was perfect. Beautiful thing. It's always great to be back uh, here at Christ Church of Oak Brook, where uh, Becky and I have very great memories of our experience here in ministry. And and, uh, as David mentioned, uh, we did uh, celebrate our son Jesse's wedding on Friday night here in the Garden Chapel. And uh, we remember very fondly that 26 years earlier, we stood around that baptismal font and uh, baptized Jesse and welcomed him into God's family. And to have his wedding here was a really great honor for us, and we're very grateful for that. David really didn't tell the truth, however, uh, about how I got to be here uh, this morning. I had at, called David and said, is it possible for, you know, to have Jesse's wedding here? And he said, yeah, we can make all the arrangements. That'll be great. We'll take care of it. Uh, we'll roll out the red carpet, make sure everything can be taken care of, for which I was very grateful until two weeks later, I got an email from Dan Meyer that said, oh, by the way, while you're here, Using a little leverage of the favor bank, apparently, but I am. The things have changed at Christ Church. You have these beautiful new windows here, and lots of other changes that uh, have taken place since we've been here. But the the, the change that that I'm most honored by um, is the blue robe. Many of you might not know this, but when I was here, uh, only Doctor DeCryder wore the blue robe, <laughs> and uh, I would go home at night and say, you know, Becky, sometime I'm going to get a blue robe. A blue robe. And so today I have the blue robe, so that's a, a big deal. But apparently only because he's not here today. So I'd, I'd be happy to know I graduated to the blue robe finally myself. We, um, we live in Traverse City. We're grateful for that. We have a wonderful congregation there. As David said, we've got this whole multi-site thing going. We just bought a a 90,000-square-foot abandoned factory that we're turning into a ministry center, which is a a great economic climate to do something like that in. Uh, So I haven't gotten any smarter since I left here. But we're excited about what God is doing there, uh, and we like living there, although we haven't had much. A lot of people come to visit us in Traverse City because it's a great place to come and visit, but they never come like in January or February. When we have 130 inches of snow, they usually want to come in July and August, although this year that hasn't worked out so well for them because we've had a terrible summer. Dave mentioned that we, we have a boat now, uh, and people say, have you used your boat much? And I go, it's a boat. It's not an ice cutter this summer. We need an ice cutter. We have a lot, a lot of things. But we love living there, and it's great to be in ministry there, and we're just always great to, it's always great to be back here in Oak Brook with you. In, in John chapter 16, um, the Apostle John tells us about some preparations that Jesus made uh, for his disciples for his departure. And like many people do today, uh, if you are in the process of dying, 
Uh, sometimes, some of you had this experience with your parents or close loved ones where you sit at the bedside and they tell you uh, what they'd like to have you do, how they'd like to have you carry on. They prepare you for that event. And Jesus was doing that with his apostles, though they didn't really get it at the time. They didn't understand why he was preparing them in such a way. Uh, but in John chapter 16, he, he tells them those things about, about this uh, arrest that's going to take place, about being on trial for these trumped-up charges of some criminal act that he must have performed, about the beating that would take place, the carrying of the cross through the streets of Jerusalem up onto the hill where he would be crucified and then buried. They didn't really understand all of that. But perhaps the most important thing that Jesus said to them is recorded in verse 33 of that gospel where John says about Jesus, where he says, I I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Not I have told you these things so that you might have peace. I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace, which identifies where peace comes from. The only source of peace in the world and in life is in and through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say something even more important. In this world, you will have trouble. Just part of life. It's going to be difficult. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. And so, we live life and experience what, what Jesus called trouble. We, we talk about it differently ourselves. We have little phrases that we use that kind of talk about the trouble we might have. Some of it is big trouble, difficult trouble, emotional trauma, hard for us to deal with, and, and, and others not, are kind of trifling, maybe not so much, but it happens. Uh, we talk about life's surprises. Life threw me a curveball, unexpected turns. Things go south on us. We've reached an impasse. Those are all the phrases that we kind of use to talk about the trouble that life might bring. And what does that trouble look like? Well, it could look like this economic downturn in which we live, as a lot of people worried, afraid. Production cutbacks, an altered career path, marital strain, problematic children, psychological episodes, a health crisis. Our aging parents need us. We talk about the trouble of life in that way. And then sometimes trouble isn't quite that traumatic for us. It can be simple things, easy things. In June, I bought myself a new watch. And uh, I, I was talking to the clerk about this watch. And because I am still Dutch, it was in a discount store. And I was trying to get an even lower price because that's the way we go in Dutch land. And I said to her, I said, well, is this watch water resistant? She goes, absolutely, water resistant. You know, I, you know, you know we get in the water, we have the boat, you know, it's going to get wet once in a while. She said, it's, it's water resistant to 30 meters. 30 meters. About 90 feet. Should be good. I don't plan to go much over my waist, but I just need it in case it gets wet. <laughs> A little water resistant thing would be okay. So on the 4th of July, it was the only nice weekend we've had in Trevor City all summer long. We were out in our boat. We were in the water. Our son, Jesse, who just got married, was there with us visiting, preparing for marriage, left his wife at home to work so he could go play. That's the way things are going to go. And we're out in the boat, and we're playing this paddle game in the boat with a ball and so on. And, you know, my watch gets wet, and I go home at night, and I look to see what time it is, and, and my watch is all fogged over. 
I'm thinking, what's the deal with this watch? And I'm thinking, oh, that's right. She said it was good to 30 meters. She said it's not very good in three feet of water. That's the problem. (laughs) So I'm thinking, this watch is defective. Now, when you have something defective, it's called a lemon, correct? It's just a lemon. It doesn't work. In Michigan, I don't know if you know this or not, but we're having an automotive crisis. You might have heard about it. Our whole economy in Michigan is pretty much based on the automotive industry. Everything's kind of related in one way or another. In fact, on our way down here, there's a sign of the state border now that says, uh, last one out of the state, turn off the lights. Um, People are fleeing like crazy. But I was wondering, you know, why is this automotive crisis upon it? Why, Why all this trouble in the automotive industry? And then I remembered that several years ago, they were having all sorts of trouble with new cars. Any of you ever bought a new car and had all sorts of problems with it? It doesn't start. It falls apart. You find screws on your floor. You don't know where they came from. You know, lights go on and off. It doesn't run very well. And you take it in, and they're trying to fix it. They're trying to make it right. It's going to be okay. Well, people had this stuff all the time with these cars. And so they passed a federal law called what? The lemon law. It's a lemon law. You got a lemon. Your car doesn't work. You, can, you know, they got to give you a new one. I'm thinking, like, why do I want a new one? This one didn't work. Can you spell Toyota or whatever? I don't know. So these things happen. Sometimes when life has problems or difficulties, throws us these surprises, we say that life is dealing us lemons. And when you get lemons in life, you've got to make a choice. How am I going to deal with this? Am I going to be kind of sour and take it difficulty and whine about it all the time? Or am I going to make it a good experience? David read us the story of this man named Benaiah, not the most popular Old Testament character in the children's ministry today. They're not having a big celebration of Benaiah's birthday or anything. Very few people have ever heard about him. In the previous uh, verses, if you go back and read in chapter 23, uh, God has inspired Samuel to write about three mighty men of David, the three mighty men. These guys are warriors. They're they're very tough. They, they're the guys that you send out in front of the war. And when you read about them, they, they share their resumes. Here's why. Here's why these guys are the ones that are called the mighty warriors. One of them is Joseph Bajabeth. This is why I didn't have David read it. He couldn't pronounce the names. Uh, who killed 800 men by himself in one battle. Now, you've got to remember, th- this is back. Uh, there are no, you know, the weapons are hand-to-hand combat. 800 men in one battle. Hand-to-hand combat. That's a lot of people. That's a mighty warrior. A mother named Eleazar who fought off the Philistines valiantly for such a long time that his hand froze to his sword. I mean, just hours and hours of battle, his hand was stuck on his sword. It's the first recorded case in medical history of carpal tunnel syndrome. They had to peel the sword off of his hand. That's a mighty man. And then... Shammah, who defended an entire field that the Israelites owned against the army of the Philistines. These were the mighty men, the cream of the crop, three and three only. Then we read about this man, Benaiah, who didn't make the cut. His resume is there, but he didn't make the cut. He was not one of the three, it says there. Just below the cut line, he did not have a blue robe. He struck down two of Moab's best men. That's part of his resume. He took down an Egyptian who had a spear and all he had was a club. And it was not an Egyptian. It was a huge Egyptian. 
You know, Shaquille O'Neal are bigger Egyptian. Who had a spear, all he had was a club. He went into battle against him. And not only did he defeat him, but he shamed him by taking his spear from him and killing him with his own spear. Not just defeat, but shame. But he didn't have a blue robe. And then there's this odd verse. You get kind of caught up in all this warfare, this mighty man. You know, the kind of stuff they put on lunch buckets and pajamas. Those guys. Then there's this, did you, did you catch this odd thing? He went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. These are the kind of nuggets, the morsels, the, the great treasures that are in the Scripture that you oftentimes skip over. You don't think about. It's why you can read the Bible over and over again and suddenly come across something that, that you might have never read before. He went down into a pit on a snowy day and he killed a lion. It's the kind of thing that should make you ask questions like Middle East and snowy day. This is why no one liked to have me in junior high Sunday school. Those are the kind of questions I ask. Explain that to me if you would. He went down into a pit on a snowy day to kill a lion. Now, how exactly does this happen? Let's, let's just try to imagine that Benaiah is in the, the Israeli military. He's got a little R&R, and he's taken some time off, and he's walking across the field, and there's a lion off on the side. And, and this is what happens, is it not? I mean, you're, you're not expecting this. It's kind of a life surprise, a curveball. He reaches an impasse, whatever you want to call it. Life is the in him lemons. Why today? He asks all the questions you and I would ask. Why today? Why now? Why does this happen Happen to me? Couldn't there be a better fortune for me, Benaiah? But he comes across this lion. So he chases the lion through the field, which has got to make you ask, do they require psychological exams to be in the Israeli army? He chases the lion across the field. The lion falls in a pit. And he doesn't celebrate. He goes down in the pit to kill the lion. Don't you find that rather interesting or curious? Why, why would someone chase a lion into a snowy pit? But it is a great resume builder, is it not? If you're going to, to want to be part of the mighty men, you know, killing two Moabites is one thing. A gigantic Egyptian is another, but you chase a lion into a snow, you know, in, around into a snowy pit, and you kill it. Go down to Brookfield Zoo. Jump in that lion's den. They weigh three hundred to five hundred pounds. They run thirty-five miles an hour. They can leap thirty feet in a single bound. But now he went into the pit and wrestled one of those. What's that about? Quite sure I understand that. But it is a good resume builder. And this is what happens with God's people. Sometimes what looks to be a threat in life, something dangerous, something you should be afraid of, something you should run away from, is the very thing that you need to encounter. When life throws you lemons, you've got a choice to make. Be sour or make lemonade. But I made a choice. He made lemonade out of lemons that day he didn't run away from the lion he went down into the pit and this is the way god builds our remnant just like 
you and I, God has a plan for Benaiah's life. And he's going to actually eventually execute that plan. And he uses everything that happens to us in life as a resume builder. And all of us have these things happen. We have setbacks. We have difficulties. We have trials. And the question isn't whether they happen or not. The question is, how do you deal with those things? And Benaiah is a great example of how to deal with them. I have a friend who said to me, when these kind of things happen, it's either a setback or a setup. We like to think of them as setbacks, things that happen, not going to work out so well for us. Or is it God setting us up for something that we don't understand, yet is going to happen, is encouraging us to do. And it's going to build our resume, not for ourselves, but for his service. Because if you keep reading this story of Benaiah, you see that he eventually becomes the leader of the Israeli army. Not the three mighty men, but the guy who doesn't make the cut. So like me, eventually, Benaiah got the blue robe. And this happens all the time. Challenges in life. Think of this guy named Joseph that we meet in the Old Testament. He comes from a relatively dysfunctional family. I think it qualifies as dysfunctional if your brothers want to kill you. We had no incidents like this at our wedding. Becky's brother dancing on the table was just a minor thing, but it was okay. Benaiah's brother want to kill him. Or Joseph's brothers want to kill him. But one brother steps forward and talks him out of it and says, let's not kill him, let's sell him into slavery. Like, that's a step up. So they sell him into slavery. He's sold into slavery again. He has to work in Pharaoh's house. He's given the lowest of the low jobs. But he does them all so well that eventually he climbs the ladder. And now he's the most successful servant in Pharaoh's household. He's made lemonade out of his lemons until he meets Pharaoh's wife who accuses him of sexual misconduct, and Joseph is sent to prison. So once again, major setback, wouldn't you say? While he's in prison, he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's wine steward and baker. They are released from prison. Pharaoh has dreams. They don't understand them, but they remember this guy, Joseph, in prison. Joseph is called upon to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and he becomes the most powerful man in the world. Life had dealt him lemons, but he made lemonade out of those lemons. And that can happen in life. You can make great things out of nothing. Is it going to be a barrier or an opportunity? How are we going to respond to the challenges? Our current economic crisis has, has dealt lemons to many people. And a lot of us are afraid of what might happen next. And fear paralyzes you. You don't want to act. You don't know what to do next. We don't know where it's going to end, when it's going to bottom out. Friday night, we're trying to celebrate and have a wedding, and someone says, do you think we're at the bottom of the economic crisis yet? I'm going, I have no clue, and I don't want to talk about that tonight. But who really knows? So we live in fear what might happen. Read a story Friday, and... USA Today cover story about a man who was in the automotive industry for 15 years. Lost his job. Lemons. You can quit, be sour, be bitter, be distressed. Collect unemployment for as long as it lasts. Whatever you ought to do. He chose to go back to school. Became a nurse. Now works in a hospital. Has a very secure job. Not as much pay. 
but he's working and can provide for his family. He made lemonade out of his lemons. And that's what God empowers us and calls us to do. And allows us to do. The local community college in Traverse City that we call a university. Hey, we can make lemonade out of lemons. Reports that they have the largest enrollment ever of people over age 35 right now. People are retooling. They're trying to make lemonade out of the lemons that they've received in life. Now, Ben and I, I was faced there with a choice to make. Regardless of how you think it happened. And I like my story better than what the Bible says. You know, where he sees the lion in the field and chases him and he falls in the pit. I mean, does it make any sense that he sees a lion in a pit and still goes down there anyway? This makes no sense to me. But Benaiah had a choice to make. He, 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 he could have played it safe. However you believe it happened, he, he could have looked down in that pit and said, Lion, in pit, snowy day, that's bad enough. I'm out of here. That's playing it safe. And I think most of us, by our natural bent, play it safe. But let me ask you a question this morning. How many times don't you think we as God's people miss an opportunity to do something great for God because we decided to play it safe. I think God is the great risk taker and encourages us to be the same. Otherwise, it isn't faith, is it? There has to be a gap. God encourages us to be the great risk taker. How many times have we missed doing something great for God because we decided to play it safe? thinking about that in anticipation of my return to Christ Church of Oakbrook, thinking about what we used to call the tribal story. How did this all get started? Paul Butler developing the idea of the Oakbrook community and having plans published and families going to him and saying, you know, we saw your plans. That's relatively interesting. It's, it's a great project. We'd encourage you to go ahead. But we noticed there's no, no church no church in your plan. So those five families pushed forward. Paul agreed to have a church in Oakbrook, property at 31st in York, and safely ensconced in a secure ministry over in Western Springs. There's a guy named Arthur DeCryder. Could have done the traditional thing, stayed in the Christian Reformed Church your entire life, worshipped with Dutch people if you can take that every year. But left the safety and security of that congregation for something totally unknown. And aren't we grateful for those five families in Art DeCryder? Or this ministry would not exist. You could play it safe. Or you can take risks. Ministry is about risks. It's also about having people like Benaiah that you wonder about. I mean, why does a guy leave Rancho Santa Fe, California to be the pastor in the Middle West? I'm going to write Dan Meyer an email about that. See if he'd like to move to Traverse City. I'll leave him my snow shovel. 
in theological circles, we talk about sins of commission and sins of omission. You know, things that we do that God said, you know, we really shouldn't do that. And so we commit these sins, these acts of disobedience. But, but sins of omission are things that we often forget about. In an old liturgical prayer of confession, it talks about forgiveness for the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone. Sins of omission. Ignoring the needy. Walking past the poor. Forgiving, forgetting to feed those who are hungry. Not putting our arm around the lonely. Sins of omission. wonder about those acts of omission. How many times have God presented us with opportunities to do something that we've omitted and haven't done because it was just way too scary for us? What seems like simple things that God asks us to do Is there anything more simple in the ministry of Jesus than this phrase, follow me? Follow me. Do you realize how scary it was for people in the first century to follow Jesus? First, they all had to turn their back on their entire religious heritage. They had to admit that this carpenter from Nazareth might be the Messiah. Hello, is anybody home up there? They had to leave behind businesses, homes, everything that meant security to follow Jesus. What sounds so simple is a scary proposition. It's scary for us as well. God asks us to do things that fill us with fear. And that's why it's called faith. It's like going down into a pit to wrestle a lion on a On a snowy day, it doesn't always have to make sense. But it may be what God calls us to do. Life continually hands us lemons. And it's kind of non-discriminatory. It doesn't make a difference how old you are, what stage in life it happens. You're always getting lemons. I want to close this morning on my foggy watch. You know, Beck, maybe I could retire and they'd get me a blue robe and a watch. (laughs) Subtle suggestion. People have been asking me to retire for years. I don't know what that means. I want to close with a story. Took place several years ago in Traverse City. When when we moved to Traverse City, the the athletic director at at Traverse City St. Francis High School knew that I had coached basketball at Chicago Christian, and so he asked if I would coach basketball at St. Francis, coach the girls' basketball team. And the, I said, you know, for the first year, let me kind of get acclimated. My, my daughter's going to go to school there. She doesn't want me hanging around, bothering her and all of her friends. <laughs> Apparently, I don't hide in the corner very well. So the next year, he called me again. Would you be interested in coaching girls' basketball at St. Francis? And I, I said, yeah, I, I'd, be, I'd be happy to do that. It would be a lot of fun. And, and, and I, inherited, uh, I inherited a very good group of girl basketball players. And, and I implored what I have learned are the three most important things in coaching any sport, whether it be baseball, football, basketball. The three most important things to your success are talent, talent, and more talent. And I had a group of talented girls, but they were also kind of high maintenance, you know? (laughs) 
And in fact, I have a friend, I said, I have a high maintenance group of girls. He goes, that's redundant. <laughs> high maintenance in high school girls is a redundant statement. It's not necessary. A lot of them had known each other since kindergarten, which meant that they had claws that were like nine-inch nails with each other. History that I didn't know about. One of the girls on that team was Katie, and Katie wasn't the most talented of the basketball players, but Katie was a very good athlete, and Katie worked harder than anybody. You could ask Katie to run through that brick wall in the back of the sanctuary here, and she would just go and do it and then pop up and say, How'd I do, coach? No questions asked. Hard worker. And her teammates recognized not only her hard work, but her maturity. They elected her captain, and I knew why after a while. She was the rudder of our ship. She took charge of high-maintenance girls and put them in their place so I didn't have to, which I appreciated greatly. And about three-quarters of the way through the season, Katie played the best game that she had ever played. She scored like 23 points. She was all over the court defending people. I didn't hardly ever take her out of the game because even though we had talent, I loved to win. I've, I've become competitive in my old age. I never was before. But the next day at practice, Katie couldn't get out of her own way. Tripped over herself, fell down during drills, couldn't make a pass happen, got more and more frustrated with what she was doing. Toward the end of practice, we had a scrimmage. Someone passed the ball to her. She completely missed it, hit her in the stomach, and she melted down. Now, I've seen high school girls melt down over important things like, he didn't look at me. (laughs) But he looked at you. I also learned that the most important thing in girls' basketball is the distribution of the uniforms. They ask important questions like, do these shorts make me look fat? (laughs) Katie had never melted down before. The other girls had melted down. I couldn't figure out. I knew there was something wrong. She finished practice, went in the locker room. Her mom showed up, and I said, is there anything wrong with Katie? "Ah, She hasn't been feeling like herself lately. She says she kind of feels like when she runs, she's got her feet in wet cement, and she's tired all the time, and... I'm going to take her in and and have a blood test. I I think she might have strep or mono. And I said, that's a great idea. So that night, she called a family friend who was a doctor and got an appointment for Katie at at a very important time um, during the school day, not during practice. And so Katie came to practice that night, and she's sitting in the stands and telling all the girls and me about what happened at the doctor. I went to the doctor, did all these tests. I hate needles. The doctor had to stick a needle in my finger and take blood. And then 10 minutes later, he came back and did it again. I was scared to death. I almost fainted. You know, high school girls. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so the girls sit down in their circle to stretch out, which mostly is jaw stretching, but they have to do it. <laughs> and Katie's sister walks in the door and, and asks Katie to come over and talk to her, so... Katie goes over and talks, and I notice that Katie has another meltdown and runs to the locker room. I'm thinking, oh, I love big sisters coming to practice. So I said, Alicia, what's going on? And she said, well, the test came back for Katie's blood samples, and she has leukemia, and we have to take her immediately to Ann Arbor for treatment. And so that began a a nine-month journey with Katie, Back and forth to Ann Arbor for oncology treatments that you couldn't get in Traverse City. Three and a half hours one way, three and a half hours back. 
In January, her mom called me and said, you know, the doctors have recommended that maybe Katie talk with a counselor or a social worker, or, you know, she'll say things to you that, or to, to someone that she wouldn't say to her parents. You know, be a good outlet for her. And so we talked to her about it, and she wants it to be you, Rev. Would you come and talk to her? So I began going to talk with Katie every Wednesday. It's like Mitch Album, going to see his old professor, you know, Tuesdays with Maury, it was Wednesdays with Katie for me. Why Wednesday? Because every Thursday morning in the dark, Katie got up and sat in the back of the Suburban as her parents took her to Ann Arbor for chemo treatments all day long. And when she was done, her dad made a bed for her in the back of the Suburban and brought her home. And she was scared to death. Hated chemo treatments. We talked about everything every single day. And Katie got stronger as time went on. And It's a big news story in northern Michigan when a 16-year-old has leukemia and they hear how she's handling it. And so one day, a reporter interviewed her, and this is what Katie told him about having leukemia. Going through something like this gives you strength, Katie said. Being a teenager, there are so many stupid things that you worry about. But I realize that there are so many things that are much more important. I don't think that God gave me leukemia. But He allowed me to have it because He wants to use me. There's a reason for it. He has a purpose for me. I said that Katie was one of the most mature 15-year-old girls I've ever met. She's one of the most mature believers I've ever met of any age. To be able to put her situation in that perspective. And God used her illness in profound ways to touch so many people's lives. The following August, Katie lost her battle to leukemia, and she died. One of the things that happened because of Katie's death, it was the first time a Protestant pastor ever spoke at St. Francis Catholic Church in Traverse City. Katie's dad has on several occasions spoken at our church about how you can make lemonade when life gives you lemons because he learned from his 15-year-old daughter that God doesn't give you tough times, but He uses tough times to teach you and other people lessons and that good can come out of tragedy. And today in Traverse City, if you're a young kid or a teenager, you don't have to go to Ann Arbor anymore to get treatment. You can get it at Munson Hospital. Because of Katie's death and the inspiration that she was to others, others have life. In this world, in this world, you will have trouble. But I've overcome the world. Will you pray with me, please?